Welcome to Ohio Matters, Cleveland.com's political podcast. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. Thanks so much for joining us. We are here today at the Cleveland Public Library, and we could not do this podcast without them. They provide the tools and support that we need to make sure we can put this out every week. So we uh, give them a big thanks. Um, If you have a creative endeavor and you want to see how the library can help you out, visit them at cpl.org. Again, that's cpl.org. And if you've feedback on today's show, please reach out to my colleague, Seth Richardson, who is on assignment this week at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. Today on the show, we had Ohio Representative Keith Faber, who is running to become Ohio's next auditor as a Republican. And it was an interesting interview, wasn't it? It's a doozy. Yeah, so uh, Keith Faber has, th- th- we'll hear about this later in the show, but thing that kind of stands out about him the most is that uh, Columbus Monthly magazine had uh, sort of like a, a, a yearbook issue uh, in 2016. It's like best hair, like most likely to succeed or whatever. So some of the designations he got include most ambitious and most humorless and least compassionate. And so he has this kind of like tough reputation and, you know, actually sitting down and talk to him, he does have a sense of humor. Um, I think the, the really the big thing about Keith Faber is that he's a lawyer and he has this really strong command of like facts and uh, precision. He's kind of like a wonk and stuff like that. So, I mean, I did think that I learned a little bit more about him and uh, he has uh, some kind of fun stories uh, that he shared with us. So what did you think, Mary? You know, he's a very personal guy. I mean, you know, you you read sort of the descriptions or, you know, the characterizations of Keith Faber, um, like that uh, article you mentioned, and I don't think it really matches up to the guy when you meet him in person. He strikes me as the kind of guy who really enjoys governing. Some politicians really enjoy um, politicking and and being on the trail, um, and that's their strength. I think Keith Faber is the kind of guy who likes making the sausage, likes likes the work of governing. And with that, let's get to the interview. Well, Representative Favor, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you have a line that you use saying Salina and Mercer County are on the far left side of the state. Um, now, that may be the only time where that region of the state is described as left of anywhere in Ohio. How conservative is it around there where you grew up? Look, uh, Mercer County is uh, the heart of Ohio's agricultural area. You know, we raise a lot of livestock, chickens, turkeys, pigs, dairy cows. Um, and because of that, they're hardworking people that value families and uh, and go to church. And, and it's, it's just a very... I don't want to say traditional area, but it, it tends to be a little more conservative. When I first ran for office, uh, we actually had more registered Democrats than we did Republicans in our county. Um, but uh, Ronald Reagan uh, made most of them what were called Reagan Democrats. And uh, after my primary, and I don't want to say it's because of my primary, it was because of the other races at the time, we now have about twice as many registered Republicans as we do Democrats. And so what happened is, is a lot of the Democrats in our area realized that the Democratic Party left them. Um, they're still, um, I want to say, John Kennedy Democrats or John Kennedy Republicans. Uh, they still value hard work. They value families um, and, and, frankly, value what uh, they see as, as the opportunity to give their kids and their grandkids the same opportunities their parents and grandparents gave to them. You know, for our listeners who haven't been to that part of the state, who haven't visited Salina, can you tell us a little bit about it? What's the best way to spend a day in Salina, Ohio? Well, we're right on uh, beautiful Grand Lake St. Mary's. Um, and while we've had our water quality issues, just like at Lake Erie, we actually had them first. It's getting better. Uh, so outdoor activities are always something that's fun to do. 
Um, if you're coming during Lake Festival, let me tell you to one, take you to the, one of the best festivals in all of Ohio. Um, our grand parade at the uh, Saturday evening for a city that only has 10,000 people gets 40 to 50,000 viewers, um, such that we generally get most statewide candidates coming to Salina because it's the place to be. Uh, you know, it's great community activities, um, whether it's the food stands or going to see the fireworks on the lake. All of those are great activities. Um, but really the big difference I always tell people from Northeast Ohio is uh, we've got a lot of beautiful places in Ohio. And uh, somebody who's traveled now over 150,000 miles crisscrossing Ohio, more than 400 events in all 88 counties, we got a lot of really pretty areas. The big difference between where I live and, and Northeast Ohio is we're really flat. <laughs> um, you look and you see silos and church steeples. You don't see hills. And, and that's the biggest difference. And you see just, just miles of, of flat farmland. So I was hoping to transition and talk a little bit about your growing up. Can you tell us, uh, I understand you were the youngest in a, in a pretty big family, right? Yeah, my, my parents uh, separated when I was really young. So my mom, who was a nurse, really raised us as a single mom. Um, and, you know, she worked hard. She worked overtime so the kids would have nice Christmas and, and presents. But we really learned the value of hard work. Uh, I'm the youngest. Um, I started mowing lawns and shoveling snow before I was 10. I remember my first uh, contract, as it were, to uh, shovel snow of an apartment complex. And it had to be done by 6 o'clock every morning. And so I remember getting up and making sure that got done. Uh, it was a great experience. It taught me work ethic. My first paycheck job was when I was 12. I got to be the janitor at a local business, uh, sweeping their floors and cleaning their toilets. What I really learned from that was watching the salesmen and, and the, the shop guys, the, the guys who were the union installers. Um, the harder they worked, generally, the more money they made. And uh, that work ethic suited me well. I had an opportunity to be the first in my family to go to college. Um, I got some scholarships for undergrad. I was a pretty good student and uh, worked my way through undergrad. Uh, one time serving as a probation officer and managing a McDonald's and doing all kinds of other neat things um, and worked uh, as, as for an outdoor music festival and had a lot of really cool experiences, but got a great education. Then had the opportunity to come to Ohio State again with scholarships and got my law degree from Ohio State and uh, completed most of a master's degree in public administration uh, from Ohio State. I just had the chance uh, again because I was working my way through. Uh, one time I served as a probation officer, worked in a city attorney's office, bartended, waited tables, all the things you do to get through. In the end, um, I had the chance to go work for a large law firm uh, before I had finished my master's degree. So I actually left with about a quarter left to go on my master's degree. And uh, I always look back and say, I don't know if I made the right decision, but it was the economic decision. Um, and uh, I had the education, but not the master's degree, but I got the law degree, which is the doctorate. So that worked out. <laughs> you know, I know you mentioned you, you worked your way through school. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about your experience as a first generation college student? It's, it's a little bit of a different experience than I think people who, you know, have families who, who went to college and, and maybe it was more of a given. Um, for me, the, the real distinction was the knowing that I had to work my way through and I had to keep my grades up. Um, again, I was fortunate enough to be a pretty good student. At, at times, uh, my roommates would always say some of this comes pretty easy to you. And that's probably true, certainly in undergrad. Um, but what I knew I had to do was to keep um, the eye on the ball to get out. I knew I didn't have six years to graduate. Um, and so there were a number of summers that I took classes while I was working and worked my way through the summers. But the real difference was, um, and I, I don't know how to put this in the, in the proper way, I would try to say the big difference for me was, frankly, not knowing what it meant to go to college. 
Um, my mom went to nursing school. She was an RN, but she went to nursing school the old-fashioned way. She, she learned from the nuns. Literally, she went to the, the nunnery, and that's where they taught you how to be a nurse at the hospital, and that was your program. You came out with an RN degree. And so my family really didn't, I mean, we didn't go research and travel to 19 colleges and visit them. And uh, I, I applied to a couple of colleges and the one that gave me the most money and had the, what I thought was the base, best academic programs where I went. Um, in retrospect, and I look at what kids are doing and retaking your ACT and doing 19 other things and visiting 14 colleges and, and uh, all of that I'm sure is important. And you always want to get into the best school that meets your needs and the best school you can afford. But one of the things we've learned, um, particularly in the last 20 years, is that higher education is darn expensive. Um, look, I'm proud of the fact that one of the things I did as Senate president was challenge Ohio higher education to get more afford be more affordable. And so what we did in that regard um, by issuing the Ohio Senate challenge and reducing the average cost of Ohio colleges and universities by 11.7% was really make kids like me have better access to better higher education in Ohio. Um, and frankly, there's more to go. 11.7% was a good start. Um, and if you look at what we spend in higher education, it's the only thing in our economy that's gone up even faster than health care. And there's just no reason for it. Um, so look, I know as somebody who went through that process, the difference that an education can have in your opportunities in life. I want to make sure my kids and your kids and all the kids and grandkids in Ohio have those same opportunities. And the way to do that is make sure we keep Ohio higher education as affordable as it can be. You know, I know that you mentioned that you work several odd jobs. Uh, you were at McDonald's and, you know, were a janitor. What was the most memorable experience that you've had working uh, in that time when you were working your way through school? Look, I had a lot of opportunities. I got to clerk for a judge while I was an undergrad. Um, I got to be a probation officer. But there were times when I was working a couple of jobs. Um, for example, I was clerking for, for um, a judge and, and working at Meadowbrook Music Festival, which was the outdoor music festival. And my job was to coordinate uh, what happened with the entertainers from the time they landed in our area to the time they left. And so we had some drivers and people that worked with me that we would literally pick them up uh, from the airport and drive them and be with them every minute that they were there on the ground. So that was pretty cool. You got to meet some neat people and some entertainers, and you got to see what everybody says. Some entertainers are golden. I mean, they're just fabulous people. Some aren't. <laughs> and from that perspective, uh, the ones that usually weren't weren't the ones that I expected, and the ones that were really, really neat people weren't the ones that I ex knew anything about. I always use this example, Liberace. Um, everybody's heard the name. The greatest showman that I've ever seen on stage. Fabulous. I don't really like his music. Uh, it really wasn't my style. Um, but the way he interacted with people and then the way he treated people off stage, uh, he was a saint. I mean, he was a really good person in my experience. Now, he might have been perfectly different when he went someplace else, but the way he treated my staff and the people that worked with us was just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, uh, not my, I mean, I wouldn't probably go see that and it was free for me. Probably wouldn't go see his concert, but he was a great entertainer. Um, and, and some others, uh, you know, one of the worst ones we ever had was a manager uh, for one of the big uh, Motown artists. And the manager was the problem. Not necessarily the artist, but the manager. The manager wanted his own limousine. Okay, I'm going, you're the manager. You're not the artist. The manager wanted his own catered special meal. I'm going, okay, let, let's get this in perspective. <laughs> so you, you got some great things. Uh, you know, I got to see Bob Dylan perform and, uh, you know, stack the cases in the back and come back. And 
you know, go, went to the stage manager and said, this is really cool. This is the way we need to stack our, our, our stuff all the time. And the stage manager looked at him and said, no, this is how we do it every concert. <laughs> and so he was clearly out of it. Um, <laughs> and, and so the experience is like that. So it was a great experience. So you asked me what, what most uh, unique. Yeah. Uh, that was probably most unique. Um, probably the most experiential for helping me decide what I wanted to do uh, to become a lawyer instead of a doctor. I started out pre-med. And, and biology was my major. Um, probably was clerking for a judge and being a probation officer. Those were probably the most experiential uh, changes. But but those were, look, I, I love being a lawyer. Um, you always wonder, you know, I was, I was close to going to medical school. I was about a semester away. And uh, I look back and say, you know, being a doctor wouldn't be bad. I just think I enjoy being a lawyer a lot more. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things we noticed, um, you were also a, a bartender. Um, do you still, can you still mix a good drink? I can, um, and I still do. <laughs> um, my years of, of, of being in the hospitality business, uh, managing a restaurant for a while and doing some other things, um, still makes it every time we have a party that I want to be behind the bar. Um, <laughs> I'm the guy at the grill. I'm the one making sure everybody's full, happy, and, and having a good time. Uh, it, it's just part of my nature. And, you know, my wife always comes to me, hey, these people are here to see you. Go, go mingle. I go, well, have them see me at the grill. Um, I've got good friends that do party for me um, almost every year. And they always say half the time I'm kicking the bartender out and standing behind the bar. Um, <laughs> it's just more fun. Um, I, don't, I don't look, I, I rarely drink, um, but I don't mind uh, making sure people are happy in what they're doing. The other question that I want to ask, you know, I know that you mentioned that you love being an attorney. You know, I, I want to see if you have any thoughts about why so many politicians come from the field of law. Um, for a long time in Ohio, it actually was the opposite. Uh, at one time, when I first got into the legislature, we only had about 19 lawyers in the entire mm -hmm. General Assembly, um, in part because it's very diff difficult. Ohio's a part-time legislature. It's very difficult to be a member of a law firm and go part-time to Columbus. And I used to joke, part-time in, in the legislature means you only work 60 hours a week. Um, it, it's very all-incumbency when you're doing it to do it right. Um, but uh, it's what makes it difficult for a lot of lawyers to serve. Uh, the numbers are a little higher than that now, um, in part because we've got some younger people that came in, but they're not that much higher. Uh, so generally, most people in the legislature aren't lawyers. Um, and, and the reason for that is just the nature of what it means to interrupt your practice for a couple of years, uh, particularly in a term-limited environment, and go to a place to where you may or may not um, have an easy landing. Um, I know at least one former legislator that literally while he was in the legislature for his uh, six to eight years, um, his practice fell apart, and when he came out, he had a really tough time putting the financial house back in order. Um, and so, you know, when you lose your clients, it's going to take you five to seven years to build them back. And in his case, his partnership, his, his law firm actually dissolved, um, in part because he was in Columbus, okay, and he was a member of a, a multi-member firm. So for a lot of lawyers, it's a sacrifice that's real tough on their families and fa tough on their family incomes. You know, I've heard... Um, my dad's a lawyer, and, and one of the things that he says is becoming a lawyer is, means worrying about other people and other people's problems, right? Um, and politics is some of that, too. Um, were you always interested in politics? Um, not really. Um, I, I was always interested in government mm -hmm. and the way things worked. Um, I really didn't think I would um, probably, I mean, I wanted to be a doctor, um, I got elected student body president, um, and that came after being active in student government. And I got into student government because um, some people I knew in my residence hall 
we're looking for somebody to be our local representative. And I went, and that seemed like a lot of fun. Uh, and, and we made a difference. And I noticed some things that we felt strongly about at the time. Um, at the time, I, I, I tell this story. I've always been fairly conservative. Um, but at the time, the first political candidate I ever met uh, was a girl I knew from school was working as a, a district representative for a member of Congress who was a pretty liberal Democrat. And I actually did some work on their uh, on their campaign and for parades. And it wasn't long to where I heard this person speak and said, yeah, I agree with very little of what they're talking about. So I didn't work for them very much more. Um, but most of my college life was not active in politics, po partisan politics, governmental politics. It was student government. It was trying to, to do things that we thought would make the campus better. Um, when I got to Ohio State, it's a little different. Um, I had the chance to uh, meet Chief Justice Tom Moyer as a first-year law student. One of my classmates was good friends with Tom, um, and uh, I actually had Thanksgiving dinner the first year um, because I wasn't going home for Thanksgiving. I was staying and studying, um, and she invited me over to have Thanksgiving at her house, and uh, Tom Moyer was there, and to meet the Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court as a freshman first-year law student was a big deal, and so I started following him and started following politics a little more. Um, I graduated from law school, never thought I would be working in government again. In fact, I had worked for the city of Upper Arlington in their city attorney's office and uh, actually surrendered my PERS because I figured I was done with government. Um, ended up going to work for a very large law firm, um, went in-house and worked for a company uh, where I met my wife, uh, one of the best moves I ever made. Um, we've been married 22 years and, um, and she's a saint. Uh, much smarter than I am. And, uh, and, and so we met working for the same company, and I had been working at the company for the better part of a dozen years, a better part of 10 I think we were there about eight years. Um, and uh, some people came to me and said, hey, the state rep job's open. I had been involved in local community activities at a pretty high level. And uh, they encouraged me to run for it. Um, I went to my boss at the time uh, thinking, it's going to be easy. He's going to say, we, we don't want to lose you. Um, I reported to the, to the CEO. Um, and to my chagrin uh, and surprise at the time, uh, he encouraged me. Um, I'd forgotten he was a former Indiana legislator, so he, I, I missed that. Um, and uh, ran and won in a very contested primary. So that's how I got into politics. Uh, it was not something that I anticipated. I had been practicing my profession for uh, quite a while, and uh, it was a sacrifice. The same year my wife became a college professor and left being an actuary uh, is the same year that I uh, took a 50% pay cut and, and became a legislator and opened our law firm. get capital letter it's the must-have daily read for state house happenings five mornings a week cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct timely information it's perfect for people businesses and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers the governor and all of state government from breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda if you're not getting capital letter you're missing out for more information visit cleveland.com slash capital letter that's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. So, Andrew, 
Faber spent a lot of time um, in the Ohio Senate, uh, serving as the Ohio Senate president, and was able to see a lot of or be present for a lot of the uh, political dramas that we've seen unfold over the years. It, it was interesting to get his perspective. Yeah, he's been in, in the state legislature for, I think, either 16 or 18 years now. He started off as a state representative. He got there when Larry Householder was speaker, who Householder is like this larger than life figure who's back there again. Um, and so it was just he saw all of that stuff then. But then he became Senate president. Uh, he actually got appointed to the state Senate to replace Jim Jordan when he got elected to Congress, which we didn't really get into that. It's kind of like an interesting connection. But um, as Senate president, you know, Faber basically was a partner of Governor Kasich's. Um, he and Bill Batchelder, who's the Speaker of the House, and Kasich worked together very closely on kind of a lot of like the policy achievements that Kasich would eventually turn around and run for president on. So it's kind of like um, Faber is in the middle of all of this stuff. And it also just kind of coincides with my career covering this sort of thing. So maybe it's more interesting to me for that reason. But so... Uh, Faber, who's now, um, and during the campaign, actually, when a lot of Ohio Republicans were kind of uh, cautious about this, was very pro-Trump, but he's also very pro-Kasich. He hit the trail for him, you know, and so it's just, I think he represents both, like, uh, I think as a sort of um, counter to, to John Kasich as, you know, basically being here through that whole era of Ohio politics. And with that, let's get back to the interview with Keith Faber. So you arrived in Columbus when Larry Householder just became speaker, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's right. And so he still cast a pretty big shadow there. So what was it like kind of stepping into that environment? You know, his selection was pretty contentious even then. Um, really, it wasn't for me. Um, I was one of the only races in Ohio that Larry Householder and his team and the other side, Bill Harris and his team, uh, didn't participate in. So I always called myself the independent. Um, I didn't know allegiances to either one. It gave me the opportunity to work on policies that I cared about and not worry about inter-caucus rivalries. Um, you know, I was treated pretty fairly, um, but I didn't vote for tax increases. And early on in Larry's career, uh, we had a number of tax increases under Bob Taft. And uh, so um, I didn't vote for those tax increases. And, and being independent helped me uh, say, look, I represented my district. My district didn't support tax increases. I don't think they helped Ohio's economy. So you were actually removed from a committee assignment then. You, Mary Taylor, was that the same um, time that that yes. happened? So yeah. Well, that... actually, we, we had two or three. Uh, the okay. last one was the one Mary and I were both removed from committees. I was removed from a subcommittee, um, hadn't met very long, and Mary was removed from finance committee. And uh, frankly, the reason I wasn't removed from finance committee is when Larry assigned us to committees, I told Larry, I'm not going to vote for a tax increase, um, and uh, I'm not going to vote for things that are not good for my district. If that's the case, don't put me on finance committee. I'm here to serve my constituents. And his comment to me, to his credit, was that in your district, I would never ask you to do that. Uh, and so you've got to pass. And so he honored that. Uh, now he did uh, because, you know, because I didn't vote for not one, but two or three, he did, uh, he did remove me from some committees. But frankly, the same thing happened to me by Cliff Rosenberger. Uh, I got removed from committees, uh, including the Finance Committee, six months ago because I didn't vote for the budget, um, because it wasn't, uh, wasn't balanced, and, and frankly, because I wouldn't contribute to the Cliff Rosenberger Fund. So I know that you and Mary Taylor are still friends, and I'm wondering if kind of that experience was part of that, where you guys had a, had a common sort of you know, story. Uh, look, uh, Mary is a dear friend of mine, and the reason Mary is a good friend is because we've shared experiences. Um, Mary is somebody who I got to know really well uh, when we were in the house together. And part of the way I got to know her was us literally 
um, working to avoid raising taxes. And so we worked on the same side. And you get to know somebody well. Um, our birthdays aren't that far apart. Um, and so we're roughly the same age. I'm not going to tell for her benefit how old that is. but um, and, and so I got to know her and her husband and her kids. And um, I just think she's a wonderful human being. Um, but having said that, um, uh, you know, we got, to, we got to know each other pretty well. So we're bouncing around a little bit, but, you know, you're in the state legislature. You've been in the state legislature for quite a long time now. And so you've seen kind of a lot of the, the big political fights, you know, during that we've seen in Ohio during that time. So you were on the Senate committee that marked up Senate Bill 5, the collective bargaining issue. And I'm just kind of wondering, that obviously became very contentious and it was eventually rescinded by voters. So how, how, what do you think about now about how, that, how all that transpired? Yeah, you're using the term marked up uh, awful liberally. Uh, if you remember back to how that bill happened, the bill was introduced and even before any of us could see it. And as you remember, I was a member of the leadership team at the time and I didn't even get to see the bill. Um, and that was one of the rubs that a lot of my colleagues, Republicans and Democrats, had against the bill. And so we really didn't get to do the amendments. The bill was really carried by Shannon Jones and it was really marked up by Shannon Jones and it was really worked on by Shannon Jones. There was one time during the process and I argued very strongly as somebody whose dad was a higher patrolman. Um, uh, you know, while my parents separated and my mom raised us, I still had a cl fairly close relationship with my dad who passed away last year. Um, I argued very strongly for arbitration proceedings to stay in for police and fire and first responders. Look, I've been a mediator now for 23 years. I know alternative dispute resolution works. I've used it. I've arbitrated. It works. And so I argued for us to fix that problem in, in, in Senate 5. I actually had a meeting with the governor and then got in trouble by the then president uh, because I had the meeting with the governor to try and fix that. Uh, it wasn't acceptable. The governor wouldn't go for it. The Senate didn't want to do it and the leadership. And so we didn't do it. Um, but in the end, um, the voters said no. There were things in, in Senate Bill 5, I was a statewide debate guy for it, um, that I liked, that I believed in. And there were things that I think we could have done better. The dispute resolution procedure for police and fire were one. But I still think that Ohioans generally supported the concept of asking public workers to pay 15 percent of the cost of their health care when the average uh, non-governmental worker was paying 20 percent. Um, all of those things the voters pretty clearly said as a package they didn't like. They thought it was too much, too big, too far, too broad-reaching. Uh, we learned our lesson. And so we took that to heart during the remainder of, of certainly my time as president um, and, and, and what we did. So another issue that you worked on in 2011 was uh, the state legislature that time passed the current congressional map. And I found a Plain Dealer article that quoted you as describing it as a fair and balanced map. Um, I know that there's been kind of this consensus now that's emerged that uh, that the map was, I don't know if gerrymandering is too strong, but it's it's been criticized since then. So I'm kind of wondering if what you think about, again, Look, how that kind of has played out over time. Yeah, the term fair and balanced from my perspective is this. Um, I think 80 out of the 99 members of the House voted and 27 out of the 33 Senate members voted for it. And so it was certainly bipartisan in its support. Um, in that regard, uh, you could argue with that kind of bipartisan support, the maps were acceptable to most members of the General Assembly. Remember, acceptable may be a relative term. If the Democrats were drawing the maps, they would have been very different maps. If the Republicans didn't have to worry about not putting the thing to a referendum, uh, they would have been different maps yet. So the process yielded some degree of, of bipartisan compromise and in the end. Now, did I like the fact that Mercer County was split multiple ways? Not really. 
In fact, uh, there's an article or an email that's out there circulating where President Niehaus basically talked to the Boehner folks saying he was concerned that two members of his leadership team weren't going to vote for the maps. Um, everybody imposes that, that I wanted something else. What I wanted was Mercer County to be in one congressional district. When it was clear that wasn't going to happen, I wanted Grand Lake to be represented by somebody who knew Grand Lake because we were having an algae issue at the time. Right. And the conclusion that was reached that Grand Lake was going to be represented by Jim Jordan. Um, now, Jim Jordan's district runs from Lorraine to just outside of Columbus via Grand Lake St. Mary's. That's not a great district, but... I always say this, if you're going to draw districts with political outcomes in mind, which is what some of the advocates argue, that we want to draw 50-50 districts, or we want to draw, that's by its very definition is gerrymandering. So if you look at the history, starting in 2012, I started working with folks to try and change the way we draw state legislative districts. Um, and as a bipartisan approach, uh, we also applied that to the way we draw congressional districts. So I helped draft the constitutional amendment that now we're going to apply. Remember, Ohio voters voted for it by 70% of the vote. Um, and we're going to use those rules. And the biggest factor of those rules, other than requiring bipartisanship to get 10-year maps, is the fact that the new districts need to be compact and avoid split, splitting local governments where possible. Now, there are some other factors, but those are the big ones. If you draw maps like this, you're going to assure that people are represented by people who share their values. Uh, I'm going to be blunt it's going to be almost impossible to draw a state house district or a state senate district in inner city Cleveland that's not Democrat. Frankly, the folks that live in that area want to be represented by somebody who shares their values, and in most cases that's going to be a Democrat. It's going to be equally hard to draw a state rep or a state senate district in northwest Ohio that's not a Republican. The League of Women Voters recognize that in all of their proposed maps that they carved out certain areas of the state that were going to be, that were going to be one-sided. That problem doesn't always arise in suburban areas um, where you can draw districts that are a little bit more bipartisan. And if you keep those political subdivisions together and not separate them unnecessarily, you're going to have better districts that are fair. And so I'm proud of the new proposal. I'm proud of what we landed on. Um, applying it to Congress that we did in May, uh, I voted for it. But it's a very complex process as to how you draw the maps. The rules are effectively the rules we did for state legislative districts. But you start out by letting the legislature try it. And I believe the legislature should be the one that draws the districts. Um, that's what the United States Constitution says. Now, they've subsequently, the Supreme Court's interpreted and in saying, well, a commission's okay. I'm not sure I agree with that, but it is the Supreme Court, so we'll, we'll take it. So now the process in the state legislature or the, for, for congressional districts is the state legislature tries if they can't get a supermajority of both parties, then it goes to the redistricting commission, which is the auditor sits on. Uh, it needs to be bipartisan. Okay, you need to have four out of the seven people vote, including two members of each party, which is a super bipartisan number. If you're going to draw a 10-year map, you have to follow the rules. They're very clear rules, keeping things together, not splitting things unnecessarily. If they can't do it, then it goes back to the legislature where they need less significant majorities to get a 10-year map. And if they can't do a 10-year map, then they can do a four-year map. And if you're going to do a four-year map, now you use other rules to try and avoid, avoid hyper-partisan drawn districts. It's complicated, but it's better than what we had before where there are no rules and the legislature can do whatever they want. Because then you go to a winner-take-all approach. And that's the way it had been for, frankly, most of Ohio history. And so when you look at the 2011 map that, that you started out with the question, fair and balanced, remember, we lost two congressional districts, okay? And a hyper-partisan drawn set of maps, both of those two would have been Democrats. 
And the maps we drew, there was one Democrat seat that was taken away and one Republican seat that was taken away. And ultimately, that's probably why you got 80 percent of the vote. Uh, not 80. 80, I think, out of 99 and 27 out of 33 in the Senate. So it's, it was striking to me to see that Republicans basically did something that amounted to giving up power, you know, basically to try to make the uh, legislative representation kind of more representative. And so um, do you think that the most recent constitutional amendment that we're going to have a better system ultimately? Ultimately, I believe it's going to be a lot better system. I mean, I helped draft it. I think it's going to work. But the real solution there to me is let the maps be drawn. Um, some people want to throw everything to the courts. And I think this system creates a system to where they're going to be decided by elected officials, not judges. So how did you become Senate president? Um, I got more votes than anybody else. Oh, that's how that works. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the short answer is, is uh, you know, I, you build relationship with your colleagues. Um, and uh, there are a lot of factors that go into being president. The biggest is we operated as a small D Democratic caucus. Um, and by that, I mean, we caucused and talked about absolutely everything. Um, I would always say there were times where I didn't agree with what we were doing as the Senate. And in fact, on four separate occasions, frankly, more than anybody can ever remember, I was a Senate president who voted no on stuff on the floor. Frankly, that never happened. The Senate president before, if you didn't want the thing to happen, you didn't put it on the floor. Um, but because I made a deal with my colleagues that I wasn't going to remove people from committees because of how they voted, uh, I made a deal with my colleagues that I wasn't going to remove uh, or, or put things uh, up that we didn't support or not put things up we did just because of my personal views. So for very, very few exceptions did, did we do things that uh, there wasn't bipartisan support. Uh, well, 95 percent of the bills we passed were bipartisan. Certainly we didn't do things that there wasn't uh, – the majority support in the caucus for. The other thing, um, candidly, that we did was we talked about bills before they came out of committee and before they ever got to the floor. And so if there wasn't support for the bill inside the, the, the majority, um, generally the bill didn't come out of committee. And, and so that was always a debate we had inside the caucus, and some of those caucuses were pretty ruckus. Um, I would always say the ver difference between being in the House and being in the Senate, being in the Senate, you're one of 33. Being in the House, you're one of 99. It's just a heck of a lot easier to have influence of stuff on policy as one of 33. Um, so I remember uh, I was a legislative correspondent for a little bit in 2013. So one of the for the Dayton Daily News. Um, and one of the first big controversies I remember was the Internet Cafe legislation that you were involved with at the time. So you know about this. But for our listeners sake, um, there's an instance where a Senate committee was reviewing legislation that would have cracked down in the industry and uh, there was an announcement that it would be delayed for some time. Yeah, and the, the chairman didn't have authority to make that announcement, but go ahead. Yeah, so then the Columbus Dispatch uh, spotted some Republican members, including yourself, at Hyde Park, and there were uh, lobbyists for the industry um, there as well. And so there's this yeah. big kind of fallout from that. Yeah, I mean, the, the full set of facts on that are interesting. I mean, it's one of those things. I was a brand-new Senate president. Um, this issue was, was being debated. Um, we had very serious disagreement inside of our caucus. And the final vote reflected that, by the way, uh, where about half the caucus members, half the Republicans, didn't want to do anything to Internet cafes because they thought it was free market. We've got gambling in Ohio. Why don't we let people have access to gambling? Yeah, and aren't I, and I should say the Internet cafes were basically like slot machines. Yeah, they were slot parlors. Yeah. Um, and, and originally, you know, they were selling themselves as we're just mom and pop operations. We're just here to 
to, you know, and you know, so ultimately what had happened was weeks, weeks and before this hearing had happened, this bill had been debated in the House and the Senate was unclear. I mean, our caucus was pretty evenly split. And so a dinner had been set with the people on one side so that people could hear uh, the opinions of what those people had to say. So you got to hear both sides. And this dinner was set at a local restaurant. Um, and on the day of that dinner, uh, the then chairman of the committee basically said, well, we're going to hold this bill for a little bit until we get more information. Um, that wasn't the caucus position. It wasn't my position. And so we go to dinner and a reporter was there to join us at dinner. Now, you're a former reporter. You get it. Um, there are places for reporters and, and dinners where people are talking about public policy development isn't necessarily one of those. And so we moved the location of the dinner. Um, in retrospect, we probably should have invited the reporter to dinner and say, hey, come in, because the dinner was pretty harsh against the um, people who were proposing to keep the Internet cafes. About half the people at the dinner were anti-Internet cafe, uh, myself included. And the other half were, oh, yeah, we, we think this is good free markets. And so, as you recall, the final outcome, after we got some additional information from the law enforcement community, that these Internet cafes weren't mom-and-pop operations. A lot of them had connections to organizations that will be unnamed, and a lot of them were doing things that were illicit. And so we literally had a briefing by the state inspector general, the attorney general, and Ron O'Brien, who I always call Ohio's prosecutor, to talk about things that they had found in various raids of Internet ca uh, cafes. And they weren't good things going on. There was, um, there was things that were bad. And when we found that out, our caucus, um, like I said, we operated as a small D Democratic caucus, universally said, yeah, we're not going to tolerate this. And we shut them down pretty quickly. Um, and you know, look at the, I think the reporting on that was pretty accurate at the time about what we did. I came out and uh, had indicated that, look, these guys weren't small, small mom and pop businesses. They were, they were problematic. So you directed the caucus to give the money back that they had made contributions. And yeah. By the way, that wasn't a fundraiser. There were no contributions at that dinner. Oh, right. We, we never talked. Yeah. Right. Just so we're clear. Yeah. We never talked public policy at fundraisers. We just made sure that those two never con con generally combined um, so that nobody was ever confused. Um, the reality is, is that I thought when we found out that there was illicit activities going on in a lot of these entities, that that's not the kind of money we wanted to be associated with. So I think I'd gotten maybe 1500 bucks, uh, And so we returned ours pretty quickly, and I encouraged everybody else to do the same. Um, very small amount of money compared to the millions, uh, I mean, to the money the caucus raised. Um, but the reality is, uh, you know, we heard stories about prostitution. We heard stories about money laundering. We heard evidence about drug trafficking, all related to some of these Internet cafes. And when we heard that and we saw the evidence as to what happened in a raid up here in Cleveland, um, we were ready to shut them down. And they were shut down pretty quick. Um, ultimately, ultimately, um, look, to me, gambling is a questionable enterprise at any time. I oppose the original constitutional amendment uh, putting casinos into Ohio. Now, ultimately, when the voters said we're having casinos in Ohio, I was tasked by the then Senate president uh, to draft the enabling legislation for the casinos because he came to me and said, Faber, everybody knows you weren't for the casinos, so you're going to draft legislation that makes sure it's done right. And we did. If you look at what's happening in Ohio casinos, they're relatively corruption-free. We've had one of the best casino rollouts in the, in the country. And we did it candidly because we looked at all of the other states that had done casino gambling 
and took the best parts of their proposals, and we work with law enforcement to develop it. Um, and our Casino Control Commission is a model for other states. Um, we didn't have the same regulation on Internet cafes, and we never would have uh, because it was too fly-by-night. So in that case, again, it, it became an issue that uh, there was a raid up here in Cuyahoga County that from some law enforcement entities, and they found actually records of campaign contributions that the Internet Cafe industry had planned to award, which you subsequently basically gave back and you yeah. told them to. So I'm just wondering, broadly, the issue that the whole thing raised is kind of this discussion about what um, campaign finance and policy have, and you obviously dealt with that a lot as a Senate president. So, w- what's your view on that? Look, on, in that case, what happened was is is the people who were fighting um, for internet cafes thought that they could get access uh, to legislators by making campaign contributions. And at the time, I said, look, campaign contributions do occasionally give people access; they rarely give them public policy. Um, if the public policy has merit, it generally passes. If it doesn't, uh, it won't. The best lobbyists aren't the paid lobbyists, the best lobbyists are moms on a mission. Um, we've done a lot more for moms on a mission than we ever have paid lobbyists. Now, having said that, uh, in this case, my recollection is, is the recommendation in the stuff that McGinty found was that they give money to Democrats and Republicans, and they did. Uh, so it was them trying to get into people to get support for their position. Um, it didn't work. Um, and the reality is the money that was involved was was. Uh, I don't want to say insignificant, but the money involved wasn't very much. I think it was twelve or 1500 bucks for my campaign, and I was president of the Senate. Mm-hmm. So that tells you where, where it was. So did I answer your question? Yeah. So you're, you know, you're familiar, I guess, with just kind of like the scrutiny that can come with, uh, with the relationship between uh, legislation and, and money that goes to um, members of caucuses and stuff like that. So I'm wondering kind of... Um, what your thoughts were about Cliff Rosenberger and how that transpired Um, this year with payday lending. Look, um, it sounds like Cliff was wrong. Um, And and Cliff and I always had a tormentious relationship. I was president of the Senate. He was Speaker of the House. Okay. Um, One of the most quoted commentators about legislative caucuses and a bicameral legislature is uh, Democrats, uh, they might be our opponents politically. But the House, when you're in the Senate, they're your enemy. Um, both caucuses, both leaders often use the other chamber as the foil. Okay, we pass perfectly good legislation in the Senate. It goes in the House to die. We, we do the same thing with our editors, by the way. They, they screw up everything that we do wrong. It's their fault. Um, so. and, and so, you know, that, it's, it's always nice to have a foil. Um, Cliff Rosenberger used me as his personal foil for, for two years. And his predecessor did it for a little while, too. Um, and, and sometimes... Uh, that was unjustified. And so we didn't have the best relationships. And, and from that perspective, um, I don't know what ultimately will come out of it. Uh, if he did something wrong, as I said at the time, he should have resigned. Ultimately, he did. He didn't initially. He should have resigned. And frankly, he should have taken ownership and, and gotten the matter behind him. Um, you know, I've prided uh, myself on the fact that uh, when I was in the Senate, we were pretty pretty steadfastly ethical and, and, and just didn't have any problems. Um, now, fast forward. Uh, if uh, he didn't do anything, I hope he's vindicated and uh, he can get his reputation back. But it sure looks like um, he certainly was, was spending money on stuff that didn't necessarily have to do with being Speaker of the House. So um, 
you were in September 2016, the Columbus Monthly took a survey of quote unquote Columbus insiders and uh, you were named most ambitious, most aggressive fundraiser, most humorless, least compassionate, and most arrogant. Obviously, you didn't like that. Uh, what, what, what did you think about that when that happened? Well, first of all, we tried to figure out who actually they asked, and we figured it was about 12 people and three Democrat staffers. Uh, so I don't know that it's exactly a representational survey. Most people we know didn't respond to it. We, they would never tell us how many survey respondents they had. But having said that, look, um, this is a political world. And the fact that some political opponents took shots at me doesn't surprise me. Um, most people knew at that time that I was thinking about running statewide. But if it's the lobbyists that responded, the fact that lobbyists didn't like me, I actually think is a sign of honor. Uh, I didn't go to Columbus to represent the lobbyists and the special interests and make the political class happy. Um, I was always pretty direct as Senate president. If you would come in and lobby for us uh, for something that I didn't think was in the best interest of Bob and Betty Buckeye, I wouldn't tell you and your clients if you're, oh, good, 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 we'll think about it, we'll get around to it. I would say, not going to happen. I don't think you have support for that. That's not in the best interest of Ohioans. And so did that make me unpopular with the lobbying class? Yeah, it did. Um, I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm actually pretty proud of that. Um, I've always been trying to represent the average person, the people who grew up like I did, the people who are trying to raise their families and make a difference. Um, you know, the other thing is, is if you want to talk about whether or not uh, some people on the other side were happy with me, look, if you were somebody who advocated for things that were, in my opinion, wrong, um, at times my job was to, to point that out and, and to stand up and defend our side. Um, I was pretty effective at that. Uh, you ask me how you become president, that's sometimes how you become president, by being the strongest advocate for your side. And uh, my job as Senate president was to make sure I represented the whole state, uh, but at the same time to make sure that we advance good public policy. And I need to say no more than 520,000. When I first came into the Senate and started moving into leadership, we'd lost 400,000 jobs. We now have 520,000 private sector jobs. We had 89 cents in the state's rainy day fund. Um, today we have 2.7 billion plus. Um, we've cut taxes by more than $5 billion, and we did regulatory reform that I drafted, regulatory reform that has made sure we have common-sense compliance. We still have healthy air, clean water, and healthy, safe work environments. But we don't have 27 pages of, of, to go through to get there, and we don't also have a situation where we're more worried about paperwork than we are about compliance. So we're making a difference, and Ohio's doing better. I'm proud of how Ohio's doing under our leadership. But don't confuse my answer with me saying, better still not good enough. I want to do even better, and I know we can do better, and that's why I'm running to be state auditor. So we want to ask you about the race, but the last question about your tenure in the legislature that uh, I was curious about is that you were a partner with Governor John Kasich during your time as Senate president, and you worked with him on his major legislation, and you, uh, I don't know if blocked is the correct word, but certain things didn't pass while you were there, and you kind of, it was a partnership with him. Um, so you're a delegate for him at the Republican National Convention. You know, you're a supporter. But uh, after uh, Donald Trump emerges the nominee, there's kind of like this tension in Ohio Republican political circles. But you were a Kasich supporter who also turned around and were pretty vocal in supporting the president. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering right. what your you know thoughts are about bridging the quote unquote like Trump Kasich divide and, you know, how that was for you when you were kind of working through that process. Um, the simplest answer to that is, look, um, when John Casey came into government, we were in the ditch. 
uh, Rich Cordray, Ted Strickland, and my opponent had driven the national government and had driven the state government into the ditch. Uh, as I said, we had a, an $8 billion budget hole. Um, and the governor came into office promising that he was going to balance budgets. He was going to do regulatory reform. More importantly, he was going to legislature do those things. And, and he was going to cut taxes. And he did all those things. So when he decided to run for president, he talked to me. I was Senate president and said, Keith, I'm going to run for president. Um, I want your help. And I said, Governor, what are you going to do for the country? And he said, I'm going to balance budgets. I'm going to do regulatory reform. I'm going to cut taxes. And in the end, uh, I'm going to work to make sure that every American has the chance to meet their God-given potential. And that's exactly what I thought the country needed. And so I didn't just support Kasich. I actually campaigned for the governor. Uh, and you were in I, New Hampshire, right? I was in, I think, 14 states. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I went around the country promoting the balanced budget amendment because I believe in it. I think that's important for our kids and grandkids. And so I was all in. Now, the reality is governor didn't win. And when the governor didn't win, um, I had to reevaluate who our candidate was. And our candidate was going to be Donald Trump. And so I compared Donald Trump's vision and what he wanted to do for the country versus Hillary Clinton's. And when I compared those two things, for me, it wasn't even close. Um, Hillary Clinton wanted to take us backwards uh, and, and continue bad policies that were going to run up the debt, that were going to make my kids have less opportunity. Um, and Donald Trump wanted to cut taxes, balance budgets, um, appoint constitutionally conservative judges. And he wanted to do a whole litany of things that I thought would make this country better for my kids and grandkids. And uh, from that perspective, I supported the president. Now, let's talk about that. Um, the president has done, his policies have done what he said he was going to do. Uh, we now have the lowest unemployment across most demographic segments, including minorities, including women, um, in the country's history. Um, he has record GDP growth. Look, if you're going to balance the federal budget, the only way to get there is to have a GDP that, that's growing. You can't live at the new normal that Barack Obama said was going to be 1%. All of that means the president's policies are working. Um, and, and from that reason, uh, I think he was the right guy to be president. So what's your relationship like with Governor Kasich now? Um, the governor talked to me about a month ago. Uh, we have periodic conversations. We're not, we're not close. At the end of my presidency, uh, we had an opportunity to disagree with the governor on a couple major, major things. The heartbeat bill, right? That was one of well, the heartbeat bill was one, but the, the major things that the governor and I disagreed on uh, were um, basically the appointment he made to the PUCO that we didn't confirm and weren't going to confirm, and he ultimately withdrew. Had he worked that appropriately on the front end instead of coming in to try and tell the legislature what we were going to do, I would always remind the governor that I was – a leader of a co-equal branch of government didn't work for him. And he would always correct me. He said, no, Keith, you're a leader of half of a co-equal branch of government. And then I would remind him, but it takes the Senate to pass anything that you want to become law. Uh, the House has to go along, too, but the Senate has to pass it. And so we had a pretty good relationship of, of, uh, of the ability to talk and get things done. And we got a lot of great things done together. Um, but, you know, one thing that, that he vetoed uh, was a bill that was mine. It was a bill that uh, basically required agencies to be reviewed by the legislature every four to six years. And the governor vetoed that. Uh, he was wrong. He was just simply wrong. It required the auditor's office to do performance audits of every state agency every, every four to six years. That would have created enormous amounts of savings. And the governor said, well, we can do that in the budget. Really? The legislature, each, each chamber has roughly five weeks to go through $140 billion of state spending. You want to add on top of that, looking at whether the agencies are actually fun functioning efficiently, effectively, and with transparency. 
You want to add on top of that the ability to not only look at how they're spending the money, but whether there's a better way to meet those public policy priorities and how they spend the money in five weeks. That's why I think the legislature needs to be doing that process on an ongoing basis. Um, every standing committee needs to be reviewing an agency every every year or so. And you can get it done. It's not, not, that, not that burdensome. But remember, it's a part-time legislature. Uh, we had a grand total of one staff person as a House member, and senators have a grand total of two with a part-time college student. Okay, maybe we were overstaffed, but compare that to a, a most, a most agencies that have, I don't know, three, 400 people working for them. Um, the governor's OBM has, you know, certainly close to 100 or more. Um, put that in comparison, you understand why the legislature, I think, needs to go through the agency review process. So short answer, um, am I still close to the governor? I think we're still friendly. I had a great conversation with him just a couple of weeks ago. Um, ask him to uh, give me some advice and, 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 and do things. Um, but in the end, um, I, I think he's been a good governor for Ohio. There are things we disagree on, um, and I just listed a couple of them. So with uh, with Faber, we really got off on a on a on a roll on all the stuff about the state legislature because I think that stuff is really interesting. But he's running for state auditor, um, so that's kind of what you know he's here to talk about. And he kind of peppered it in with, throughout the interview, but we focused in on it here in the last segment. Um, so, uh, what do you think, Mary? You covered the down ticket races for a while. Yeah, I think the challenge with the down ticket races, right, is it's hard to get noticed and it's hard to get people to pay attention to you um, because there are you know, so many more, um, you know, sort of air quote, more exciting races that sort of suck up more airtime than um, your race. Um, Keith Faber offered up some, you know, pretty specific, would you, I, I think he offered up pretty specific. Um, yeah, uh, he's, he's big on performance audits. Yeah. And, you know, he's this uh, fiscal conservative. So he sees the role of the auditor's office is a way to basically make government more efficient. And that's, you know, the other sort of side of that is like, I'm a watchdog, but like with him, like I said, I think it ties more with his sort of fiscally conservative view of government. And that's kind of where it comes from with him. The the other thing to sort of note, right, is with these down ticket races, um, they can often serve as jumping off points for running for higher, bigger, better races down the line. Um, for instance, the current occupant of the auditor's office is Dave Yost, who's making a run to become the state's attorney general. Um, the current attorney general, Mike DeWine, is running for governor, for example. Yeah, so it, it does sort of seem like a pipeline. I mean, uh, Faber, like most politicians, completely deflected when we asked him what his uh, you know uh, future plans are. Um, I've never ever met a politician who has any future plans like none oh, of no, them I'm have just, I'm any just floating through life I'm yeah. kind of going here I'm going there you know? yeah it's just a total coincidence that one is running for one office and then four years later they're running for another office um yeah, we talked about it before you're not going to be like yeah I'm running for president you know and then he loses the election in two months because you know that's what's kind of in front of him right now. Right, right. So Faber definitely hedged on that. But I would expect um, he's a young guy. Um, he's done a lot at the state house. I would imagine, um, you know, we would see his name come up um, in future years um, 
for you know perhaps more prestige offices although the auditor's office is important it's it's not necessarily the most exciting race um an exciting role that the people really gravitate to yeah with Faber, you know i forget how many states he said he traveled with the case at 14. campaign you don't go to 14 states if you're not trying to collect some ious for something down the road so uh i, I would look out for him as, as somebody who has you know, a lot of a political ambition and, you know, will be a player in Ohio politics for a while. He's also very savvy. Like you can tell he can read a room and it seems like he, he mentioned that he has done mediation and, and then that's apparent. Well, let's let's get into this last segment then huh, with uh, State Representative Keith Faber. So you mentioned that you think uh, your bill that you wanted to um, have more uh, performance audits of the different agencies. So that's actually a good segue into the state auditor's office, which you're running for. So why are you running for state auditor? Look, it's the one state agency where you can go to improve the way state government works. Um, Not only do you catch people in government who are lying, stealing, and cheating, which is an important part of the role, but to me, maybe the more exciting part of the role, and maybe it's because I'm a little bit of a a, a wonky geek, uh, is the fact that I want to go in and figure out how we can use um, data analytics, how we can use performance metrics, how we can go in and look at the way that we can go through agencies and to get them to do things faster, better, cheaper. Look, if you're taking 12 steps to review a permit, maybe we can reduce it to four steps and get the permit out in half the time. Um, Ultimately, that means you can do more permits. If you're job and family services and you're providing case uh, services to people who need public assistance, uh, making people wait uh, is not a good thing. So maybe we can figure out how to get the job training and all those things targeted faster to get better results. Um, that's why I'm running to be state auditor, because I know from my experience in state government, look, I've, I've done budgets for now 16, 17 years. Um, I know how state agencies work. I know where the issues are. I know what to be looking for. And I know we can get better results. And let me just give you one example. The Department of Administrative Services and the committee that I chaired this last year um, came in and identified that they had a $40 million um, IT database for people who have licenses from the state. It spent $40 million to develop a database. Then they're going to spend $6.5 million every two years to operate it. That's ridiculous. And so what we did is, is basically called around to other states and said, hey, you all do licensing. I know it shocks you, but other states actually have databases. And I asked the DAS folks, did you call other states to see what they had? No, no, we need an Ohio-specific solution. Did you go to the private sector? Most companies have databases to track their inventory or track their products. Did you go out and, no, no, we we needed an Ohio-based solution. So I called Indiana. I'm licensed to practice law in Indiana. It's right across the border from me. Um, Indiana uses their IT system for their Indiana license renewals. It tells me my CLEs. It tells me all the other stuff. The Indiana license system was developed about 10 years ago at the cost of about eight, $900,000 and was updated a couple of years ago for another million. So they got two million bucks in it. They have one IT guy who generally manages it for about another hundred grand. So where we're gonna spend more than Indiana spent in their entire system just to maintain the Ohio system every two years. That's ridiculous. That's the kind of thing that we can fix by performance audits. And I'm gonna go in and do an IT, uh, DAS IT performance audit as, as the first performance audit we do to look at the way they're contracting and awarding IT contracts. We can do better. Now. The Columbus Dispatch, to their credit, also at the same time figured out that maybe there's some shenanigans going on inside the DASIT system. And maybe that's why some of these contracts are a little pricey. But in the end, uh, I think it's more systemic uh, than, than what we're talking about. And that's why we need to find ways to do it better, faster, cheaper. That's ridiculous. 
Bob and Betty Buckeye expect better from their state government. So I think you mentioned all the miles that you've put on your car while you're campaigning. So we're, we always uh, are interested to hear from people who are running statewide for the first time and how it's different than maybe, you know, representing a smaller district. Um, I had seven counties. My district was roughly two hours north, south, two hours east to oh, west. It's pretty big. Yeah. Um, it's not Ohio. <laughs> okay. You don't know Ohio until you've done five and a half hours driving from Ashtabula to Cincinnati or five hours driving from Ashtabula to Salina. Um, Marietta to, uh, to Salina is also almost that, that distance because there's no direct route, uh, particularly if you go to South Point. That's a little farther yet. Um, Ohio's a great state, but we've driven, uh, like I said, over 150,000 miles and only had two breakdowns. My, uh, my 2008 Chevy Impala that we're driving around the state now has just about 290,000 miles on it, and I'm happy we only had two breakdowns. One was a, uh, a water pump that decided to break down literally at the Jackson exit going down to Gallup Police. And uh, if you're ever going to have a breakdown, I encourage you to do it in Jackson, although we did find that at 6.04, Enterprise will not come pick you up in Jackson, Ohio. Four minutes after six. Is yep. that the thing? Uh, they yeah. pick up till six. Four, four after, they wouldn't come pick us up. But the tow truck driver was nice enough to drive, uh, drop us off at a local restaurant where we met a guy that I know down there from the Ohio Commodores program. And he had dinner with us, and it was nice enough to even drive our car back to Columbus the next day when it was fixed. And you can get a water pump and a tow in Jackson, Ohio, for 360 bucks. That's pretty affordable. But your car is still running, though. I know Frank LaRose's car broke down, not, you know, at some point in the campaign trail this year. And we picked him up. Frank <laughs> picked me up coming back from Gallup, the Jackson story. He picked us up. Um, uh, you know, we, we take turns. Um, uh, literally, I drove Frank back from Cincinnati earlier in the week. Um, uh, our statewide ticket are really good people, and I'm, I've been pleased to run with them. So you represent a very conservative area of the state, but Ohio obviously is more politically diverse. So we're wondering how you adapt, you know, a conservative message to kind of be more broadly, you know, appealing to different kinds of people. Look, what, what people in Ohio care about is jobs and the economy. Um, and that job message isn't a conservative, it isn't a liberal message. I go back to the fact that over 95% of the bills we passed uh, in the state Senate when I was president were bipartisan. Um, you know, look, we're going to have disagreements, and we're going to have disagreements on things like abortion and guns and budgets. Those are the big, you know, flashpoint issues. But we're not Congress. Uh, I always tell service in Congress does not prepare you to be a state legislator. It doesn't prepare you to be, um, it really doesn't even prepare you to be a statewide office holder. Running in Ohio, governing in Ohio is very different than Congress. And the biggest difference, the biggest difference is how you interact with each other. Um, and, and the fact, um, I laugh, I said, most congressional staffs are 15, 20, 30 people. Um, I don't think the governor has that many people on his personal staff. It's just a different world. Um, and, and so it's a very different experience. So one of the big issues in your race, or at least Democrats have been trying to make it an issue is ECOT, the electronic classroom of tomorrow. We've talked about it in the show. Um, so, uh, the, the drill is that they allege that Republicans, did not aggressively enforce um, student standards while they were there because they were campaign contributors. Of course, you know, they have been now closed down under Republican administration. So yep. uh, I'm wondering, you know, what you think about that issue and why you think ECOT finally had the outcome that it did. It's the standard Democrat ploy of guilt by association or, or innuendo. Uh, let's, let's talk about, look, for me, um, I've been a huge supporter of school choice my entire legislative career because I think moms and dads make far better decisions about where their kids are going to go to school and the future of their kids than some arbitrary governmental rule or worse yet, some, some government bureaucrat. But the other thing we know is that school choice in Ohio has dramatically improved the quality of education in Ohio. 
when school choice came in, well before I was in the legislature, we had a large number of really systemic failing schools, particularly urban core schools. And what we were seeing is, is that kids were being trapped and we were losing generations of kids. So school choice comes in and it allows people to have an opportunity. What we know is that the graduation rates and the success rates of even the failing public schools have gotten better under school choice. But you add in the voucher schools, the, the charter schools, the um, homeschooling, all of the other options, and we're seeing education improve. Um, fast forward, um, when I was president, became president, we started taking a look at, at failing charter schools in particular. Um, we were concerned that the school choice movement uh, was essentially hitting a roadblock by allowing anybody to get into the school, um, school choice movement and, and that we really weren't enforcing standards. And so we passed House Bill 1. Now, it says House Bill but the bill was really strengthened and improved as part of the work that the Senate did. In fact, the deal we started was the House would pass their version, the Senate would fix it, which is what we did. We added significant accountability procedures. And this happened in 2015. Um, the law became passed in 2015 and started becoming enacted in 2016. What we know since then is more than 50, 50 charter schools have closed as a result of that bill. And we went from charter school sponsors, and that's what the bill really focuses on, is the people who are responsible for the charter schools. Charter school sponsors, less than 10% of them were in the top two rating categories. Today, more than half of them, after Senate Bill 1, are in the top two rating categories. So we dramatically improved um, charter school management and operations, including right here in Cleveland. Um, breakthrough, a wonderful school choice option here in Cleveland. What we know is, is that where there's a breakthrough school and a public school in the same neighborhood here, the breakthrough school dramatically performs better than the Cleveland Public School District School. Uh, frankly, that can be said for most charter schools now than that operation in the area. Um, but the other thing we know is they're operating at less than two-thirds of the cost of the public school. Now, that's an issue breakthrough wants to fix. They want more parity in funding, which is a good argument for them, an argument that I'm sympathetic to. But we know that that improved it. Now, in the end, during this process, before we passed House Bill 1, we had some bad charter schools. ECOT was one of them. Um, everybody thought that ECOT was uh, you know, providing safe uh, alternatives and was educating kids. In fact, I met some kids uh, that graduated from ECOT from my area. Uh, one of them, I think, went to Stanford and graduated when he was 16. Um, ECOT was a good option for him. But ultimately, we found out that kids weren't taking advantage and they weren't signing on and they weren't participating. Uh, the Department of Education, using its existing authority, started investigating this in 2015. 2016, they, they gave the standards to the auditor. A Republican auditor audited them. A uh, Republican attorney general fought the litigation that ultimately shut them down. And uh, they're out of business. Um, so in the end, um, we've had some wild successes uh, in, in the school choice movement. And we've had a few failures. But during this time period, do you know how many failing public schools, traditional public schools, have been shut down? No. Zero. So we need to keep doing things that are improved quality of education across the board. And school choice, in my opinion, is doing that. So there were issues that were raised about ECOT kind of over the years. So why did it happen where they finally were closed down when they were as opposed to maybe earlier? And that's kind of the substance of the Democrat argument is that it took too long. Well, ask then why it didn't shut down when... Rich Cordray was attorney general and Ted Strickland was governor. 
they had the same authority. I mean, the whole argument by the Department of Education Supreme Courts, we had authority, and then they argued that House Bill 1 buttressed that authority and made it clear in discovery that we gave them in House Bill 1 that we passed the specific authority to look at student participation. Um, I would argue that it wasn't until the Department of Education, after a Dave Yost charter school attendance audit, started thinking maybe we need to look to see whether these kids are logging on and what their participation was. And that happened in 2014, 2015. And as soon as that happened, um, that's when the, the problem became apparent. But remember, with House Bill 1, even when we started having that discussion in early 2015, before we really knew the nuances of the problems with ECOT on their student participation rates, we started talking about whether or not charter schools, sponsors, uh, were going to be accountable for perpetual failure. And that issue would have probably snagged ECOT as well, because ECOT um, would not have been able to stay in business with perpetual failing sponsorship. And that's ultimately one of the things that caused over 50 schools since it passed to close down, was sponsors don't want to be in a situation where the school's continually failing, because they lose their ability to sponsor schools. They go out of business. This is a question we like to ask people, and I think that, you know, we don't usually get like a great answer out of it, but, um, you know, I've, I've read that you've expressed interest in running for attorney general someday. So we're, we're just kind of wondering what your general political ambitions are. Um, right now, I'm going to serve as auditor and be the best auditor uh, I can be. Um, my kids are little. My kids are in uh, sixth grade and eighth grade. Um, I don't have an interest in doing anything else right now, but making sure I see my kids graduate and do good things. I want to make sure that they have the same opportunities in Ohio that I have. Um, candidly, um, uh, my wife uh, is, is far smarter than I am, and she is somebody who really didn't want me to run for office to begin with. And so we'll worry about that when we cross it. Um, today, I'm running to be the best auditor I can be. We have the plans. We have the vision. But more importantly, I have the experience to hit the ground running on, on day one. You know, that's what the Ohio CPA Association said when they endorsed me. It's what the last four auditors all have said when they endorsed me. Um, I've been endorsed by uh, all of, I think, all of the living auditors. There may be one in there that I don't know about that's still alive, but I don't think so. Um, and, and that record is something that they say, candidly, um, after having done the job, um, one of them said to me, Keith, you're the most uniquely qualified person to run for state auditor. Uh, because of your knowledge of how state government works. Would you uh, would you ever encourage your kids to enter politics? Or if they came to you and said, I, Dad, I, I want to run run for office, what would you say? That's the running joke uh, in, in the community when you've got kids in your elected office, particularly when you've got kids that are moving into their formal ages. Um, my son says very clearly, uh, and he's the uh, his personality is more like mine. He's pretty outgoing. He, he's pretty much an extrovert. And he says very bluntly and plainly, I'm never running for office. Um, and, you know, he's the one who plays football and he's the one that wants to be an engineer and, and do all those things. Um, uh, my daughter, on the other hand, is more like my wife. She's more of an introvert. She's a little shy. Um, if I had to pick one of my kids that I thought would run for office, it would be her, um, simply because I think she's going to be more like her mom. She's wicked smart um, and uh, she can analyze things very quickly. Um, and I think that skill will take her far. Now, I don't think she has an interest now. Uh, she wants to either be a doctor or a teacher. Um, and, uh, you know, she's 11. We'll see what happens. So I don't know if this is going gonna, gonna to fall flat or not, but around the same time that Columbus Monthly survey came out, there's a Twitter account that popped up called Darth Faber, and it was like a parody of you. 
Uh, we're wondering, uh, is there another Star Wars candidate or character that you think you're most like, if not Darth Vader? I don't think I'm like Darth Vader. I think I'm a warm, fuzzy, nice guy. Um, more, more like Chewbacca then? Yeah, I, yeah, probably. Except I, you know, maybe I do scream like Chewbacca sometimes. Um, look, um, I, I laugh at that. It, you know, Darth Vader rhymes with Darth Vader. And the other thing I've been confused with, you know, Faber College was Animal House. Um, and so people always, uh, you know, try and try and link us to that where, you know, Emil Faber, the founder of the Faber College in Animal House always says knowledge is good. I agree. Knowledge is good. Um, so uh, look, I, in the end, um, if I had to pick a, it would be somebody who was fighting for the force for justice and, and truth. I don't think I'm a Luke Skywalker. Um, maybe, maybe one of the unknown fighter pilots who's going to drive, uh, and provide air cover where it's appropriate. Um, but in the end, um, I, I think it's all about being part of a team, uh, with a goal. And if you want to use Star Wars as your example, the goal was to liberate uh, the force from the power of darkness, uh, you know, limit, lim the Republic from the powers of darkness. Um, that's what I've tried to do. I have tried to make sure Ohioans, uh, can live their God given opportunity and that we've made an opportunity for Ohio to do better. Uh, I'm proud of where we're at as a state. Um, but I think we have a lot more to do. And last question. I hear you like baseball. So what, what's your favorite team? Um, right now it's got to be the Indians. I'm in Cleveland. Um, Good answer. My favorite team's probably the Salina 8th grade uh, or 7th grade uh, boys team when my son's playing. Next year to be the 8th grade team. Um, I've coached baseball. I mean, the running joke when I was president is we'd do conference calls and I'd be standing on first base coaching my kids. Um, encourage him to run, run, run. I forgot I had the phone not on mute. Um, and so my caucus members were kind of going, what? Run for what? Yeah, run, 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 run. run. You know, when you're coaching first base, that's what you tell them to do. Um, I, one of the things I always love about baseball, and frankly all sports, and, and people always ask me, well, what's your favorite team? Well, other than you know Ohio's leading professional team, the Ohio State Buckeyes, um, I'd rather watch high school and, and, and frankly middle school sports than I would professional sports. Um, the reason for it is I just think it's, it's seeing the love of the game. Um, I think pro athletes certainly have that love, but some of it gets lost when it's business. And, and so if, if, if I had to put one into, into play, I would probably say anything I'm watching at the, at the high school or middle school level. Well, that's all we got. So Keith, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, if people want to know more about our campaign, you can go to our website, keithfaber.org. Um, and if you have a question for me, you can certainly uh, send me an email, keith at keithfaber.org. Uh, we're happy to answer any question and uh, try and make sure people have an informed decision come November 6th.